this big picture question of digitization is completely unavoidable. And it is simply not uh, sustainable to suggest that whereas every other aspect of our lives, uh, you know, from our, our, our mobile phones with their portable cameras to uh, the, the video store, which is now just Netflix, is going to escape. You know, your financial statements are going to be digital. There's, there's no two ways about that. And we're back with more Future Proof. I'm Bill Sheridan. Uh, and man, I feel great. I'm, I'm rested. I'm relaxed. Uh, I'm recording this on my first day back in the office after an awesome 11-day vacation overseas. My, my first trip across the pond, actually. Uh, my wife and my daughter and I spent some much-needed quality time. Uh, first in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, we drank lots of Guinness. We toured, we toured Malahide Castle, which is breathtaking. Uh, man, what a great town. Uh, and, and then we followed that up with another great town, spent a few days in London, uh, toured the Tower of London, great time, uh, a little touristy, but but hey, we were tourists, right? So why the heck not? Uh, that place, man, man, the history there. You you know, here in the United States, we, we talk about things from like the revolution, you know, 200 years ago, 250 years ago, and we think, man, that's old. Uh, and then you go to London, right? And you walk around this fortress that was built in 1078, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then you go to a place like the British Museum and see the Rosetta Stone, which dates back to 196 BC. Uh, and then you turn the corner there and you see something like a, a Phoenician coffin, which is even older, 5th century BC. There were entire sections there that were, were taken from the Parthenon, you know, that, that temple from ancient Greece. And then you realize, you know, we Americans really don't know what old is. It's incredible stuff there, just absolutely incredible. Um, you know, we got to see priceless works of art at the Tate Modern. That's another great museum. Uh, we saw Picassos and Rothkos and Warhols. Uh, and then we capped it all off with a couple of days in Amsterdam, took a tour of the Anne Frank House, which pretty much depressed the hell out of us. But, but you know, it was something that we thought we needed to do, you know, uh, one of those things you have to see. Uh, and after that, we, we needed to lighten the mood up a little bit. So we walked around the Rijksmuseum for a while, another great art museum, saw some Rembrandts and Van Goghs and Vermeers. And it was just a, it was just a great trip, you know? And, and in fact, even, even the things that went wrong turned out to be awesome in the end. Here's an example. So I left my camera in the back of a London cab, like an idiot, right? I took a cab uh, to the Tower of London, set my camera bag on the floor in the back seat, hopped out of the cab outside of the tower and left the camera bag sitting right where it was. And, and I didn't realize it until about halfway through the tour. And I said to myself, well, that camera's gone. I <laughs> uh, got back to our hotel later that day and found a note under the door. The cab driver found the camera and drove all the way back to the hotel to, retur to return it. I mean, how awesome is that? In fact, that's the, that's the second time I've done something that stupid in the past month. Uh, a few weeks back, I left my iPad behind in a Detroit hotel room. And after I got home, uh, I called the hotel, not really expecting it would still be there, but you, you never know, right? And, and the cleaning staff, what had happened was they, they found it and they were holding on to it for me. As, you know, I filled out a form or two and they shipped it back to me. So uh, that's just proof that, you know, in a world... It feels a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, meaner and more dishonest and divisive than, than ever, uh, that really most people are good and kind, you know? And I believe that. It, it's, it's been hard to hold on to that belief lately, but it's true. Uh, and seeing those folks in Detroit and London 
go out of their way on my behalf, you know, just small gestures that, that go a long way toward restoring my faith in humanity. So, so to those folks whose names I don't even know, you know, thank you for that. Makes me feel good, you know? And now I'm back talking with you fine people. So things just keep getting better. Uh, so, so forgive me uh, for dragging you through that, that personal rabbit hole there. Just wanted to kick things off with a little feel-good story. Um, let's get on with the podcast, shall we? My guest this week, my guest is John Turner. He is CEO of XBRL International. And I know what you're saying. XBRL, uh, is that still even a thing? <laughs> and, and the short answer is yes, it's still a thing. Uh, maybe even more of a thing than ever. If you recall, XBRL, uh, it's, a, it's a data tagging technology that's designed to help users of financial statements, namely investors and analysts, to compare financial information from many different com- companies and, and industries. A lot of hype around it a few years back. It, it kind of went quiet in recent years, but really all that meant was that everyone was kind of getting used to it, right? It's everywhere now, and, and so it's not a novel thing anymore. I mean, what's that old saying? When something becomes ubiquitous, it, it also becomes invisible? That might be the case here, right? The SEC now requires all public companies to use XBRL uh, to file their financial statements. That mandate got that phased in over a number of years, and, and now it's pretty much the law of the land. But John Turner says that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. Uh, there's a, there is huge potential, uh, both here in the United States and abroad, uh, for companies, for governments, all kinds of entities to solve real problems, to save, save some serious money, and, and to move this profession forward through the strategic use of XBRL. And, and he and his team at XBRL International are trying to make that happen. So John spent some time recently helping me get caught up on, on what's happening with XBRL now and what it means for the future of our profession. So let's take a listen. Here's John Turner. So, John, let's define our terms quickly for those who might not know much about this. What what exactly is XBRL? Okay, so XBRL is the business reporting standard. Uh, strictly speaking, it's a language. It's called the Extensible Business Reporting Language. It's a way of digitizing performance reports, compliance reports, tax, uh, a whole host of information that typically goes from business to government, sometimes goes from business to business, uh, and increasingly business to bank. So if you've got many groups of people that need one organization to receive a bunch of information, uh, and it's uh, a financial statement, or it's a risk statement, or it's some form of uh, compliance report, you'll find that right around the world, increasingly, that information isn't produced as a PDF document. It isn't produced uh, as a paper document. uh, And it isn't even produced as an Excel or a Word document. uh, But instead, it's a digital document. And And by digital, I mean that we've got a little code. It's like a barcode that fits around every single unique piece of information that is being reported. uh, And that information can be read by a computer. So the simplest example is profit. Hey, I made a million bucks in profit this quarter. Great. Uh, Let's put a little code, a little wrapper around that to say this is profit. Furthermore, it's profit in US GAAP. It's not a non-GAAP measure. It's not an IFRS measure. It's nothing else. Uh, And that it's in US dollars and that it was for, you know, the period ending 30 June, say. All of those pieces of information are what a computer needs to be able to make sense of it and reuse it 
whereas, uh, you know, if you've got that on paper and a human is consuming that, well, they can make most of those things, they can work most of those things out by the context of what they're reading. Computers are dumb and they need these little codes to help them along. So Expertel is all about digitizing uh, the performance reports that help us all make decisions about um, the health of companies, about uh, where to invest, about where to lend, um, or are just, just needed for, for compliance purposes. Um, so that's what Expertel is. It's used all around the world. In the United States, it's probably best known by the banks who have to provide uh, call reports. That's their quarterly uh, condition reports to their bank regulators, the Fed and the FDIC and, and others, as well as the SEC. So if you're a listed company in the United States, you have to use XBRL to provide information to the securities regulator um, and therefore to the markets about, uh, about your financial performance. So, so that in a nutshell is what, is what XBRL is, is all about. So it sounds to me as if as if the the big idea here is is standardization, um, just getting everyone to be speaking the same language with regard to this stuff. Is is that is that accurate? Yes and no. Uh, yes, we want everybody to be speaking the same language where it makes sense to be speaking the same language. So it's not possible to compare. A term that is is uh, uh, reported under the international accounting standards and the and U.S. GAAP, and just assume that those things are comparable. They might they might might both say profit, they might both say cash, but there are subtle differences in the definitions that support those things. So XPRL allows the disclosure of information in the context within which it is being uh, uh, produced. So uh, a U.S. GAAP report is always going to be different to an IFRS report. Chinese uh, GAAP reports are different to, to IFRS in some subtle ways. And, and that's true right around the world. And XPRL provides a way for domains or, or birds of a feather, if you like, all to report together and all to produce information that is uh, broadly comparable. Now, the, the exception to that is particularly in relation to financial statements. If you look at two companies' financial statements, um, even if they uh, you know, are, are right next door to each other and are operating in the, in the same environment, you'll find that they've made different decisions about what to include in their financial statements. They'll produce some in- different information that gives you uh, a way of comparing them and, and a way of understanding their comparative performance. There will be a whole host of things, particularly top-line uh, disclosures, which are comparable, but then there'll be some things that are unique to a particular company. That might be uh, the name of a division. Hey, my games division uh, is doing well uh, this quarter, or it might be a particular concept that is it is that is unique to that to that company, and that investors or a bank or somebody might might want to know about um, that is unique to that. So Xperial also lets you. Uh, produce those that kind of information. What you tend to find is that large public companies make those kinds of uh, unique disclosures. We call them extensions. Whereas uh, smaller private companies tend to their their information tends to be to be more comparable. So the answer to that was mostly. Um, can, can you give me some examples of of how it's? And you you mentioned a, a few. Um, Kind of high-level examples earlier, but some concrete examples of how it's being used successfully today. Where where is this language showing the most promise? Um, in sure, either? yeah, sure. So, well, it's it's being used all around the world. There's around about 130 mandates of which we're aware. Um, we're the standard setter. We uh, we don't 
we, we own but freely license these specifications and people use them uh, and they don't, they don't even have to tell us that they are using them. They, they usually are nice enough to do so. So a couple of, couple of different examples. One might be the work that's going on in the UK. So in the UK, every private company has to provide an annual report, a financial statement, to the tax regulator and to the company's registrar. And they, those, uh, those reports these days are all digital. They're all in XBRL. Another example would be bank regulation right across Europe. There are actually 30 countries uh, within the European economic area that report through to the European banking authorities. Um, and that information is all in XBRL and they produce um, huge quantities of, of actually finely grained and pretty comparable information um, right across uh, right across that continent, um, and then a third example might be the Japanese markets, where the Japanese uh, JFSA, which is the equivalent of the US SEC, and the uh, what's called these days the Japanese Stock Exchange, collect information, the the financial statements as well as a range of earnings statements and other information that's uh, uh, that will move uh, markets. They capture that information in XBRL and they've been providing that information to uh, their markets and to their market participants for, uh, well, nearly a decade now. So in many parts of the world, this is just part of the furniture. I guess one of the things that's different uh, outside of the United States uh, is the predominance of private company reporting. Private company reports are, are just part of furniture in many parts of the world but are, uh, are a little unusual in, in the US. So in Asia and in Europe, and, and even in, in most parts of South America, private companies, as part of the deal of getting a limited liability, have to provide a, at least an annual financial statement. Uh, and, and increasingly, that kind of information is being produced in, uh, in XBRL, which can be consumed by computers as well as read by humans. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the U.S. and, and what's going on over here. Um, you know, the hype around XBRL was 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 pretty loud a, a few years ago, anyway. But mm-hmm. as with a, a lot of stuff like this, it seems like here in the U.S. at least we're we're kind of on the late adoption curve of, of stuff like this and anything new. Uh, I know you mentioned the SEC is now requiring it um, with regard to. Um, publicly traded companies. What, what's, what's going on with XBRL in the US these days that, that you're kind of watching? Well, so there's, there's, a, there's a couple of different things that are, that are related to the SEC. So let's just start with those. W- one of those things is that there, there are two different ways of producing an XBRL report. Um, one is as in a computer-readable form, and another is in, as a web page, which is also computer-readable. That special a web page is called an inline XBRL document. And the SEC, for about 18 months now, has allowed the provision of, of company reports in inline XBRL on a voluntary basis. They made an announcement, gee, at least 12 months ago, saying that they were considering mandating that. And our expectation is that that will be mandated towards the end of this year. Or at the very least, they'll make an announcement about it and, and announce their timelines. That will create some benefits to uh, publicly listed companies in the United States because they today have to do two filings. They have to produce an HTML document, which is the human-readable version, and they have to produce an XBRL version, which they submit as an exhibit to those filings. You know, it's not rocket science to work out that that's a bit burdensome and it also creates some quality problems. Um, so we look forward to the day that the SEC shifts into that, that uh, more modern direction. Uh, 
But at the same time, it is fair to say that there has been some criticism, including some congressional criticism of, of the SEC's existing expert filing arrangements. Uh, there are questions particularly around quality of some of this data um, and, and the costs associated with this data. Now, we argue pretty strongly that, that most of those uh, concerns are misplaced. Uh, we do understand that um, shifting away from a paper paradigm is, uh, is a little tough for some people. After all, we've all been producing financial reports uh, on paper for, what, 500-odd years. But uh, you know what? It's the way of the world. This big-picture question of digitization is completely unavoidable. And it is simply not uh, sustainable to suggest that whereas every other aspect of our lives, uh, you know, from our, our, our mobile phones with their portable cameras to uh, the, the video store, which is now just Netflix, is going to escape. You know, your financial statements are going to be digital. There's, there's no two ways about that. So that's something that is, is active, actively to be being debated in the, U, in the U.S. SEC context, although we are very optimistic that um, the SEC will seek to further improve their SEC reporting framework to allow these inline expert documents to be the mandatory mechanism, um, and that will make life simpler. What we haven't seen in the United States, but there are a few steps to, uh, to, to see, is, is um, modernization and simplification for uh, private companies. And let me give you a couple of examples of, of what's being done in that context. Some of your listeners uh, and in the Business Learning Institute will be familiar with the idea of surety contracts. Um, if you're in the construction game, then you have to provide insurance around the completion of your of your uh, of your building. Hey, I've, I've hired a builder to build my house, and the general contractor has to guarantee that that house is going to get built, even if that that general contractor goes goes bust. That's true for the GC. It's also true for all of his or her subcontractors. So there's this really manual, really painful process for anyone in the uh, in the building trade involved in making sure that they've got uh, the right insurances for every single job. And that process is is very much paper based today. So there's a, uh, a project underway across that industry, and it is very much being driven by industry, to simplify that exercise and to digitize it so that uh, your, um, your, your accounting package can produce an expert document straight out of it. That information is what the banks uh, can use and the insurance companies can use to make an assessment about um, the health of, of your company. Uh, you know, you need to provide some other pieces of information like the fact that you've, you've completed the following projects successfully. But that process uh, promises to really take some costs out of that exercise. And it's the out-of-the-box thinking that um, everyone should, should be considering. But there's one other project that I wanted to mention that I think is really very interesting in the United States. Um, U.S. is is unique in one context in its huge reliance on municipal bonds. So local communities across the United States uh, borrow very significant sums for their infrastructure, whether they're building roads or bridges, or um, you know they're building uh, uh, new uh, new school campuses. A lot of that of that money comes from from bonds, and those bonds are um, valued and priced uh, and provided by the financial markets, again, based on very manual uh, review of financial statements. Um, and because that's a pretty complicated exercise, sometimes they're not looking at that. Instead, they're looking at things like uh, uh, what's the level of education that occurs in this, in this, in this, this city or town? 
or what's the level of unemployment in the city or town to give them some proxies about what the um, uh, you know how how reliable that that community is going to be in paying back its debts. So there's a very interesting exercise going on centered at the moment in Florida towards the digitization of those municipal reports, which are called CAFAs. And uh, we think that that's got great promise to simplify and improve uh, the transparency and and reliability of of, uh, municipal finances and from there uh, simplify the process of, of, uh, of bond financing. So those are just a couple of things that are happening in, in the US, but there's, there's a bunch of others that, that people are working on. Um, they perhaps don't have the prominence of, of the SEC's framework, but some of them have really got a, a, a potential to shift the needle and modernize and simplify reporting away from, from very manual processes that exist today. And uh, fascinating stuff. Um, so so it, it, with regard to public companies, obviously, the, you know, Getting getting widespread adoption was 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 pretty much easy, you know, an SEC mandate, right? You, you say yep. you have to do this. H- how do you convince somebody on the private side that this is something that they they ought to be looking at, or or, or really kind of should be moving in this direction when when it's not mandated for them? How do you how do you convince them to to kind of go down this path? That's a good question. And look, it is very much not not a question of a mandate. It is a question of return on investment. And if you look at the way that the world is changing, digitization is increasingly important in finance. If you look at a number of uh, sort of leading reports and leading thinkers in this area, the reliance in the finance function on high-quality analytics, comparative analytics, and the provision of information which is perhaps not just at a aggregate level, but it gets down to a transactional level, is something that is on a top of mind for decision makers within finance. If you can pull together all of your information in a structured way and in a manner that gives you a control and you, you can really trust that information, then you've really got a, a, a business case for improving traditional approaches to the close and traditional approaches to the way that you manage the internal use of, of, of management information, much of which, of course, rolls up to external reporting. So we see that very much as the next chapter of this standard. We already have uh, a number of environments that are experimenting with the standardization of uh, data from at, at, a, at a transactional level um, and, and tagging that information at that transactional level and rolling it up at whatever level is necessary using uh, dictionaries that are unique to the particular company to standardize data for that company. Some of that information will then get rolled up to gap concepts, for example. And if you're a public company, then sure, it'll get, get disclosed. But the use of information and the reliability of information inside an organization has never had more focus it is certainly true that you can do these kinds of things without standards. You can do these things uh, locked into individual software silos. But we think that an increasing and important option for companies will be to use standardization in that transactional reporting, um, rolling up to whatever is, is driving the company's um, activities and helping decision makers. So, it's, it's, it, it absolutely shouldn't be a question of mandates. It should be a question of rational economic actors making sensible decisions. And uh, that's, that's where we see um, a lot of the next steps with this standard. 
Yeah, and 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 for those who are who are interested or or want to make that move, what any adoption issues that they should be looking at or or be aware of as as they start to move down this path, and and how how do they address those? Sure. So, look, there's a host of questions there, um, and one of the most important is uh, the fact that even even a few years ago, even two or three years ago, some of this stuff simply wasn't possible, or at least it wasn't possible uh, to do economically. And that is because of, uh, thanks to the, to the advent of, of, in particular, a range of big data technologies, which make some of these things vastly simpler to, to actually manage and, and increasingly manage with, in an open source context. So um, that's, that's certainly one of the approaches that you can go down. Um, but uh, recognizing that you're dealing with huge quantities of information and standardization of that information is the starting point to be able to get your hands around it is, uh, is, is the starting point for these projects. This is an area that we are looking to develop uh, and are actively working to develop standards on so that people will have a cookbook, if you like, to be able to utilize. Um, however, to that something that today people need to be part of the Expo Consortium to, uh, to participate in. And of course, if any of your listeners are interested in that, then they can get in touch with us at Expo International or at our US chapter at expo.us um, and, and, and ask about it. Uh, it is an active project and we see it as, as, as a very key aspect of our activities uh, going forward. Understanding that this is um, not a trivial thing, control of all, this, all of this information, um, management of the way that things uh, roll up, management of the sources of information and controlling that uh, so as to avoid uh, any possibility of fraud or anything else uh, are just some of the, the activities that are, are required in those kinds of projects. So uh, what's next with regard to XPRL? You mentioned initiatives around municipal bonds uh, showing a, a good deal of promise. What are some of the other things that are on the horizon that you guys are looking forward to? You know, there's a, there's a uh, subject which is really capturing the attention of an awful lot of people right around the world at the moment. And, and it kind of touches on the question you asked earlier around standardization, which is that the sheer cost of compliance in many parts of our businesses is 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 out of control. Um, there are lots of aspects to that, and there are and 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 the reality is that regulation is here to stay. Regulation is is not going to go away. As our societies become more complicated, there are more more aspects of our activities that clearly uh, need to be regulated. But that process has created a, a pretty extraordinary compliance costs. One area that we're focused on is the costs of compliance in similar but slightly different environments. So um, if you are a bank and you are providing information to bank regulators in the United States as well as in Europe, the, it's not the things that are the same that cost you money. It's the things that should be the same but are slightly different that cost you money. IFAC has recently published a report. They produced it in April declaring that the cost to internationally operating businesses of these small but, but important differences is a staggering $780 billion a year. The more people that I talk, about, talk to in industry about this and say, you know, $780 billion, is that really true? And you talk to you know, a fund manager or a bank and they tell you, well, you know, we did this for this particular individual uh, new regulation which was being implemented in, in Asia, in Europe, and the, and the U.S., and they all implement it in slightly different ways. 
And it ended up that we needed 16 different systems to, fire, to, to, to produce that information. And as a result, yeah, that cost us millions of dollars. If you add that up across institutions and that, add that up across the world, that, uh, those, those kinds of telephone numbers become almost believable. But you know what? Even if that's out by an order of magnitude uh, and the real number is closer to $78 billion, it's still way too much. And this is something that can be addressed and can be addressed through collaboration can be addressed through collaboration between industry actors saying, hey, we're doing this and this and this doesn't, doesn't make sense and bringing that to the attention of, of the people that they're reporting to. That's extraordinarily important. But it's also important that the regulators themselves are starting to uh, understand that the, what they're doing is, is driving really considerable costs on our, on our economies and that this needs to be fixed. So that's one of the things that we're very much focused on. We're also focused on some new technologies. So we're very interested in, in particular, the way that artificial intelligence is driving an ability to look at much more data simultaneously than was ever possible in the past. Um, that creates very significant potential benefits, potentially creates some other, other problems. But uh, that's an area where we have people right around the world in different companies and in different governments around the world that are researching the, the use of, of those technologies in that field and we certainly see as being just something that all of us take for granted before too long. But at the moment, we're pretty much at the cutting edge of that, of that kind of field. So one final question for you, John. What, what, what does the future with widespread adoption of XBRL look like to you? What, and what kind of problems can, can this language help us solve going forward? Oh, so that's a, that's a great question. It's something that we spend a lot of time um, focusing on because we kind of have a perspective about where this should all get to, right? When the XBRL standards were first developed, there was this perspective that it should be possible to model the real world in a digital form. And you know what? We've done that. But guess what? The real world wasn't perfect. And in particular, all of those subtle differences that impair comparability uh, and impair discovery really come out. So why is it that it is so hard to compare the performance of two companies across two different countries? The digitization of that information, which you would expect would greatly improve that process, simply throws into stark contrast the fact that those differences exist. So we're looking forward to the day where we can use digitization to really solve some of those problems and make it easier uh, for companies to deal with uh, larger supply chains, make it easier for companies to, to discover um, and be, to be able to trust those folks wherever they are because uh, they have a better understanding of uh, what the, their performance is and, and what risks they face. And that's, that's not something that's um, tomorrow. That's a, that's, a long, that's a long journey. But improving comparability and improving reuse of reporting concepts right around the world is absolutely where we're focused and think that this new technology will take the world and, and, uh, and ensure that our, our companies and, and indeed our governments are uh, performing better, are more effective and, and are more, more transparent. Fascinating stuff. It's going to be interesting to see how all of this shakes out. But uh, John, uh, thanks so much for, for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and your insights. Thank you. Great to speak. 
That was John Turner, CEO of XBRL International. If you want to find out more about XBRL, visit XBRL.org or visit the website of XBRL US, which is the stateside chapter of XBRL International. That's at XBRL.us. And you'll find even more answers to your XBRL-related questions at the 2018 Data Amplified Conference. You'll learn how regulation, technology, and business all kind of intersect. Uh, You'll learn how structured data combines with new technology and, and just generally immerse yourself in the future of business reporting. And you'll get to do a little international traveling of your own. <laughs> the conference is going to be held in Dubai from November 13th through the 15th. You can get complete details and register at dataamplified.org. 